you would turn with me in your copies of God's Word to the Gospel according to John. That's John's Gospel and chapter 1. John chapter 1, and we'll begin our reading here at verse 15. John chapter 1, starting at the 15th verse. And beloved, once more, hear the holy word of the living God. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have we all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. And this is the record of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites unto Jerusalem to ask Him, Who art thou? And He confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked Him, What then? Art thou Elias? And he saith, I am not. Art thou that prophet? And he answered, No. Then said they unto him, Who art thou, that we may give an answer to them that sent us? What sayest thou of thyself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. And they which were sent were of the Pharisees. And they asked him, and said unto him, Why baptizest thou then, if thou be not that Christ, nor Elias, neither that prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you whom ye know not. He it is, who coming after me is preferred before me whose shoes latch it I am not worthy to unloose. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. As far as the reading of God's word, indeed may he bless it to us this morning. As we come to this text, beloved, I think it's right for us to remember that John presents to us his account of the history of Christ's life in a very different way. He begins, of course, in the womb of eternity. He begins with the eternal word. But then as you come to verse 5 of chapter 1, and then you come to the text that we're taking up this morning, you remember that John is really making a connection between that great and those high theological themes that he began with in the very first section of his prologue, and now he is tying them intimately to history. In other words, what John is doing for us as he writes under the Spirit's inspiration is he's to show us that these theological realities that he's contemplated in the first several verses have real historical consequences. And moreover, not only are these things of historical significance, but the very thing, the very purpose that John has in mind is to show us that the persons we encountered in verses 1 to 14 of John's Gospel are historical persons. They walked the earth. 
And beloved, that's so very crucial to understanding our text this morning. What John is doing, he's reminding us, beloved, that that God has come into history. Of course, he did so before the incarnation, but in a special, extraordinary way. When the Word became flesh, as it were, God intruded. John's Gospel highlights this time and time again, and we'll see that not only in chapter 1, but right throughout the Gospel. But as we look at this text this morning, I want you to notice that it's not primarily, not primarily God incarnate that John is drawing our attention to. He's drawing our attention to the figure that was introduced to us in verse 6. You remember in verse 6, we're told there that there was a witness that would come that would bear witness to that light whose name was John. And so in the first part of this first chapter after the prologue, and so verses 15, really verses 15 to 34, John shows us how John the Baptist bore witness to Christ. In other words, as we look at the whole of the first chapter of this gospel, what John is doing is he is showing us those themes and those persons he's introduced to us in verses 1 to 14 have really been, been unveiled on the world stage in the, subsequent, in the subsequent sections. And so, as we look at our text, we come to this witness. In verse 19, you'll notice that we're told here that John bore record. Verse 19. If you look even before then, if you look at verse 15, John bore witness. It's the same word. The, the idea behind it is, is that of a solemn or a formal witness. You would almost imagine in a court setting. The word behind these words, witness and record, is the word martero. And you could probably discern where we get our English word martyr from it. The idea is this, John, is God's solemn and formal witness. And in our text this morning, he shows us how he, he, how he prosecutes his, his calling. You remember, if you remember back just a couple of months ago, when we took up the verses preceding, verses 15 to 18, you remember how John presents to us the Baptist's content. That is the content or, or the substance of this witness or record. And that, of course, was the Lord Jesus Christ. That everything that John preached was tied to him who in in his fullness all of God's people received. That was the content. But this morning we come to another aspect of his testimony. Not the substance, but now the identity of the witness himself. And that really is the focus of our text this morning, which is verses 19 to 28. John presents to us a clear picture of, of himself, what he is as God's witness. He does that in a number of ways. First of all, I want you to notice that he does this in a formal sense because those who are sent to him are delegations. First, from the Sadducees. The priests and the Levites have sent a commission to go and inquire about this man who's preaching in the wilderness. And you, as you look at this text, you have to wonder... You know, what, what time, really, should we have in view here? When, when is all of this taking place? Well, as you look at this text, the delegation has to have been sent sometime after the baptism of Christ. 
We know that from a number of texts. We know that because in the text itself in front of us, we really have only a span of three days in view. And as you look at this text, you'll also notice that John tells us that though Christ, he sees standing in the midst of the congregation there in the Jordan, though he sees and knows him now when Christ was baptized, he didn't know him. So this is sometime after the baptism of Christ, sometime after Christ's public declaration, the priests and the Levites send this commission to John to say, who really are you? Who art thou? That's the first delegation. The second delegation is sent from the Pharisees. And you see that, of course, in verse 24. There, the Pharisees ask not so much about his identity. They don't ask, who is this preacher? They ask, why is he doing what he's doing? Why baptizest thou then, is their question. If he's not Elias, that is, Elijah reincarnate, if he's not Christ, and if he's not that great and anticipated prophet, then why is he baptizing? Why is he administering this rite? And, and that's, not a, that's not a question, you understand that. That's, that's really an argument, isn't it? The second deputation really is sent to challenge John. We, in other words, they're saying, if you were any of these three figures, we would make allowances, make exceptions for them. We would understand why they're doing what you're doing, but because you're not them, and by your own admission, then you have no right. It's really, in many ways, a tacit accusation of presumption. You have no right to do what you're doing. But I want you to notice John's reply. John's reply to the Pharisees really stands even over over what he replied to the Sadducees and to the Levites. He says here, he who is coming after me is preferred before me. In other words, beloved, after he's told them that his commission is from the word of God, citing the prophet Isaiah, after he's reminded them of what he's already said before, that we considered before in Matthew and in Luke, that this Christ who is coming will baptize with the Spirit, that is the substance of the covenant, not just its external form, John reminds them that they're looking at the wrong person. John reminds them that he is but a witness, and that there is one now standing in their midst who possesses all prerogatives, and beloved one who has commissioned John. In other words, what John is testifying here in these verses is that as God's witness, he sets so very clearly before the congregation the preeminence, the prerogatives, and even the presence of Christ. That's his calling. That's his task. And here we see how he prosecutes it. The Christians, we think about this text and we seek to apply it to ourselves how can we do so? I'd like to remind you that, first of all, those, those who are called to be officers in the church, ministers and elders, throughout the scriptures, they're referred to with the same word, martero. They are called to be Christ's witnesses. But Christian, as you look throughout the New Testament as well, you'll find that all Christians, in one way or another, are called to bear witness to Christ, some publicly, some privately. 
And if that's the case, then in this text, beloved, what you have so wonderfully set before us is an example of what that looks like. What does it mean actually to be a witness, either publicly or privately? And as we look at John, the answer to that question is quite straightforward. They are those who testify to Christ's supreme rights and glory. Christ's witnesses, Christ's people, testify to his supreme rights and glory. And I want us to consider that under the three headings that I've already mentioned to you. I want us to look at this text as it sets before us the kind of content that that witness bearing carries with it. In other words, I want us to look at how they bear witness to Christ's preeminence. How they bear witness to Christ's prerogatives and even how they have a mind or, and, and certainly how they remind the world of Christ's presence. So take first of all Christ's preeminence. I want you to notice that John answers the Pharisees, sorry, the Sadducees' questions very straightforward, in a very straightforward manner. He simply says, no, I'm not Elijah, reincarnate. I am not Christ, of course, and I'm not that prophet, that prophet of Deuteronomy 18. What does he say of himself, though? He says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And, and there's a positive element to this that you can't miss. What John is saying here is that I have a commission from God. He is the one who has called me to this work. But there's a negative element to this that you can't miss. As you contrast, as you contrast what they've asked with how John replies, especially when they ask if he's the Christ or that anticipated prophet of Deuteronomy 18, when John responds and says he is a voice, a friend, it's a staggering thing. Because there John is showing clearly his own place. He is simply a voice to one who is so much higher and so much greater than himself. In fact, beloved, John will contrast this further, won't he? He is but a voice, but there is one that standeth among you whose shoes latch it I am not worthy to unloose. In other words, what John is saying is you've got the wrong guy. You're you're preoccupied with the messenger. I'm simply the voice. But there is one who stands in front of you who is absolutely preeminent. You should be fixated on him. You should be thinking of him who has already been revealed to you. What's striking is John... John highlights Christ's preeminence by showing his own lowliness. You remember, again, we've already come across this in Matthew's Gospel, but he says here that he is not worthy to loose Christ's shoes latchet. Now, that obviously, for most English speakers, that obviously seems hyperbolic. That this is simply an expression of, of self-abnegation and nothing more. But, but I want you to understand something, beloved. As you look at this text and you look at its broader context, John is saying something very specific and, and quite profound at that. What John is saying here, as he looks at the Pharisees especially, and he says, he says to them that he's not worthy to do this, he's saying that using the analogy given in their own literature, He is less of less worth 
than a Canaanite slave. You see, the task that's in view here that John cites, this loosing one's shoe's latchet or bearing another shoe, that was forbidden to a Hebrew slave. It was considered too servile, too mean for the least of the Israelites to do. It was a work too menial for anyone who was in the external covenant of God. That's what the, that's what the Tanites taught. That's what the, that's what the Pharisees taught. And so when John says that he's not worthy even to do this, he's saying he's not even worthy to do the least task that the least of Christ's slaves could do. Well, this is a profound statement. It's a profound statement that reminds us that when John here is speaking of Christ, he sees one who is altogether beyond reckoning in his glory and in his, in his worthiness. And it's even more striking, isn't it, when you remember Christ's testimony of John. You remember how Christ testifies of John's ministry. He says, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. He was called more than a prophet. And yet this one who is more than a prophet says, I'm not worthy even to be the least of Christ's slaves. So high and so glorious is he. Beloved, this is a lively testimony to the preeminence of Christ. A lively picture of how high Christ is, given that even someone so illustrious as John says he's not even worthy to be the least of his slaves. For him, Christ is the chiefest among 10,000. He's fairer than the children of men. And so in many ways, this text turns to those deputations and says to them, why, why are you fixated on me? Why are you thinking about me or, or trying to ascribe to me any greatness? I'm only Christ's unworthy messenger. You see, the witness then in this case testifies of his meanness and of Christ's preeminence. Beloved, as you look at this, you can't miss that the meanness that's in view here is, is the lowliness of the servant. And so, beloved, you have here a pattern for you and for me with regard to humility. John sees himself as unworthy to be a servant of Christ. And so, as you look at Luke 17, you have a picture of that sentiment applied to all of God's servants. Christ says, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. That's the disposition of a servant, according to Christ. The disposition of a servant is that no matter how illustrious we might seem to men, and even further, no matter how illustrious we might actually be among men, as John certainly was, as Christ testified, a bright and shining light in the church. At the end, the disposition must be that I am but an unprofitable servant. What does that mean? Friend, if you were to ask John as he says this, flesh that out for me, please. What John is saying is the least of his services, no matter how great, 
no matter how great the effect they may have, the Lord has profited by him not at all. That may surprise you, but that's precisely what John is saying. In fact, that's precisely what the scriptures hold out to us. Can a man be profitable to God? Asks the scriptures. Is it any pleasure to God that thou art righteous? What's staggering, beloved, in this text is the glory of God is at such a height. The, the, the preeminence of God is so lofty that when the people of God have a right understanding of that, they say their best duty has given them nothing to God that he didn't already have. Beloved, that, that, that should lay us low before him. Especially considering that here you have a bright and shining light in the church saying that any of his service is the service of one who is unworthy. Any, any of his least obedience, any of his greatest acts of obligation or duty, these things are performed by one who is mean, one who is lowly. And friend, you can't miss this, can you? That this is part of John's testimony. This is part of John's testimony. It's staggering because in this text, he's not simply telling us about Christ, is he? When he presents Christ and his preeminence to the world, he's very quick to remind the world of himself, of his own lowliness, of his own unworthiness. And beloved, that, has also, that must also be part of our witness bearing. If we aren't bearing witness to that, a friend of if the world can look at you and say, that person has never told me one thing about them, it would indicate that they have a low view of themselves. Our witness for Christ is marred. If the world doesn't see us as a humble people, if the world doesn't see us as a lowly people, make no mistake, friend, our, our, witness, our witness is terribly distorted. The brightest and the shining light in the church in his day was very quick to remind the world that he was nothing. But it's not just, of course, John's lowliness that's in view. It is Christ himself. You see this, of course, in the fact that he says that he who is coming after me is preferred before me. That's a positive statement about Christ. And friend, as you look at this text, you obviously see here a man who is persuaded of the preciousness of Christ. And so all of Christ's witnesses must be. Unto you which believe, he is precious, Peter tells us. Unto you which believe, he's precious. And I want you to notice that Peter, Peter is citing something here, namely the act of faith that must be present in all of Christ's witnesses, either in the first century, either with regard to John the Baptist, or ourselves in the 21st. It is faith, saving faith, that leads men to see the preciousness the preeminence of Christ. Why do I say that? Friend, you remember that Christ incarnate walked among this congregation on the banks of the Jordan. He walked there, but friend, there was no glowing orb. There were no bolts of lightning shooting from his fingertips. 
The angelic host was not there singing and lauding and praising his name. So how did John know that the one who was walking among men and men paid him no heed? How did he know that this one was the eternal Son of God? By whom and for whom all things were created? Especially, friend, when the prophet himself tells us that he hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we shall desire him. Friend, like every Christian today, John saw the preeminence, he saw the preciousness of Christ by faith. And so, beloved, that is, of course, crucial, indispensable to the witnesses of Christ. It's necessary that they know by saving faith His excellency, His preciousness. And beloved, they they are to know this as they see Christ revealed in the Word and apprehended by faith. That's how John saw Christ's preciousness. And that's how every witness does as well. As we look at this text, friend, what do we find John saying? Well, one, I would remind you that what John says here, he would say in heaven. And he would say that in unison with all of the bright lights of Zion. He says he's not worthy to be the least of Christ's slaves. Friend, we admire, and it's right for us to admire those who have been especially gifted by God in the church. But I'd remind you of this as well. That if we could peel back heaven just for a moment. If we could go to to the throne and see those self-same servants of Christ now, friend, they would respond in the same way John has. Take our John Calvin or our John Knox. Take our great servants of the church in the past, our St. Augustine, Bernard, or Thomas. And all of these men in unison would cry out with uplifted hand, unworthy to be the least of his servants. Beloved, as you look at this text, you and I are reminded. You and I are reminded of the freeness of grace. And you and I are reminded that in many ways, Humility is indispensable to our witness. It is truly indispensable to our witness to Christ. I want you to notice as we close this particular section that there's something in this passage that we could overlook, but it's so crucial. John has been preaching for six months or even longer, perhaps at this point. And isn't it striking that after all of that preaching, for all of John's ministry, they had to ask about himself. Do do you catch that? They had to ask him who he was. Why is that? Because what was John insisting on in his ministry? Yes, he may have been, and he certainly was, the, the voice that was prophesied by Isaiah, 
He was that servant of the Lord prophesied in Malachi. But who did John insist on? It was always and only Christ. Even though he was so, so wonderfully gifted, even though he held such a high office in the church, even though he was an extraordinary minister of the gospel, John insisted and urged only Christ, such that a deputation was necessary just to ask him, well, who art thou? We know you preach him. Who are you? And I don't know about you, but there's a sermon there somewhere. The second point I want us to take up is that the witness bearing that we have here is also to Christ's prerogatives. The prerogatives of Christ. Now, as we look at this text, and we look specifically what the Pharisees say of Christ, sorry, what they ask of John, they say here that, that if he was the Christ, or if he was Elias, or if he was that prophet, they would understand what John is doing. But because John is neither, none of them, what he's doing here smacks of presumption. But is that all that they're really saying? Is it just a tacit accusation that, that John is really presumptuous? Briefly, friend, I'd remind you here that there's something deeper in this question. There's something significant about baptism that the Pharisees fixate on. It's, it's not just that he's preaching. It's that he's baptizing is the problem. And why might that be? Well, friend, as you look throughout the scriptures, I think you'll find an answer in, in that here John is obviously administering a rite. He's obviously administering an ordinance of God. But he's not in Jerusalem. And he hasn't been sent by the Levites, though of course he's of Levitical descent. And he certainly has no place among the Pharisees. And by the way, this rite, it's not being administered throughout all of the commonwealth of Judea. It's only to those, those who come to John and in the Jordan who receive it. To, to situate this perhaps in a broader context, remember, do you remember back as, as Israel was coming into the promised land, Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh, they built an altar. They built an altar on their side of the Jordan. Do you remember how Israel responded? They, they responded saying very clearly that, that this was obviously creating a division. They were establishing their own worship apart from the rest of Israel. They were going to administer these rites among themselves apart from the rest of the congregation, the rest of the tribes. And the thing nearly issued in war, but God prevented it by making it clear that that's not, that's not at all what they were doing. It was a monument, not really intended to be a rite. But do you, see, do you see the connection between the ordinance and division in Israel? The Jews, the Israelites were very clear, if you have a different ordinance, you have created a division in the church. It becomes even clearer when you come to King Josiah. You remember when Josiah reforms the church, 
he, he removes and puts to the sword all of those who had served false gods in Judea. But he also puts out of commission those who were priests of Jehovah who had served him on other places outside of Zion. They weren't put to the sword. Second Kings 23 makes that very clear. But they were put out of commission. And why was that? Because by administering these different rites, a rent had been made. Obviously, the prerogatives of God had been encroached, and a division in the church had occurred. And so the Pharisees come to John asking, why are you administering a different rite to a select few people? It's not just a tacit charge of presumption. It's a charge of schism. Why are you creating a new people? under a new sacrament. I want you to notice how John responds. John responds by saying this, but there standeth one among you, and whom ye know not, he it is who who coming after me is preferred before me. And in this way, John answers that charge very decisively, because here's what he says. He says, really, my commission is from the Lord. My commission is from him who is in your midst and who, by the way, possesses right to do even more. Not just baptize with water, but to create a new people. To baptize with the Spirit of God. That is the substance of the covenant of grace. To establish rights and also to purge his church. That's what John is saying. And here he is testifying that there is one coming who is actually standing among them who has full prerogative to do all of the above. That too, beloved, is part of John's witness. And very briefly, friend, what you have here in this text then is a reminder that that here John is saying that he had his commission from the Lord, yes. But John is also telling us here very pointedly that if a new people is being formed, if a new people is being formed, and if this right is being administered under God's commission, it is because it is because Christ has prerogative over the church. He has right to do all. What's striking is when you turn to Deuteronomy 18, you find that prophet that's referred to. And here's what God says of that prophet. He says, I will raise them up, a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee, and will put my my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. That prophet that the Pharisees asked if John, sorry, the Sadducees asked if John was, is the prophet who will command his church, and who will do so with full authority. And what John is saying is that prophet's among you. And I am merely his messenger, merely his voice. What's striking too, friend, as you look at this text, is that John has already said this. He's already said that the one whom he is preaching has full rights to do all of this and more. Do you remember in Matthew 3, whenever he's speaking to the Pharisees, John tells them this, he says that this one, this one, with regard to the church, This one can call the church his floor, and he will gather his wheat into the garner. 
This Christ whom John preaches has full right over the church. Full right over its ministers. Full right over its ordinances. Full right over its members. And so, Christian, he's witnessing here to the prerogatives of Christ in the church. And I think it's right for us to remember that that too is an indispensable part of our witness bearing. Beloved, we live in a generation where everybody is consumed with discussion about rights and privileges. John reminds us that Christ's witnesses are principally concerned with his. But but thirdly and finally, we come to the witness to Christ's presence. He says pointedly that there standeth one among you whom ye know not. Now friend, this is a tacit rebuke. There's no way around it. And why is that? Well, it's that because here, you remember, this commission has come after Christ has been publicly declared. After Christ has been publicly anointed. After after John has already indicated him. And John turns to them and he says, There stands one among you whom you know not. And their knowledge, you understand, friend, is is not a knowledge of of invincible ignorance. It's not the idea that these ones couldn't know. Obviously, if they've heard of John's preaching, surely they have also heard of this testimony. This being the central point, central theme of his preaching. And he's saying he's standing there among you and you don't even know it. You won't acknowledge it. Really, beloved, this is a charge of stubborn unbelief, and we'll see that in the verses to follow. That prophet is literally among you. Friend, as you look at this text, you have have a fulfillment of what was promised already. Not only in the prophets, but even something that was anticipated by John. You remember that in John we're told that he came unto his own, and his own received him not. Here you and I have the first glimpse, the first glimpse of that rejection of Christ. Christ has already been publicly declared, and John has to turn to that same deputation and has to say, you don't know him. Revealed, but rejected. But there's something more in this text that's quite chilling. When John says that this one is standing among you, Friend, put yourself just for a moment in that context. They've come to John and they've said, are you the Christ? Are you that prophet that was promised even through Moses in Deuteronomy 18 who, who had command over his, have full command over his church? Are you him? And then, beloved, in that selfsame congregation stands the word of God incarnate who's already been declared to be the well-pleasing Son of the Father. And moreover, the one whom John told would come, who would come and baptize with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan would be in his hand, that he would thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, that he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. It's a chilling thing for John to say this, isn't it? 
Because he's saying the judge is in your midst. And he's hearing you now. Christ, the one whom I've told you will come to his church with fire, stands in your midst. Hearing you and your unbelief. Hearing you and your tacit rejection of him. Your ignorance, your stubborn unbelief, he sees. And so, Christian, by application, we have here that witnesses also testify of Christ's judicial presence. That Christ is present as a judge. Obviously, as he's possessed of the divine essence, that is true in all places. But can I take your mind back just for a moment to Revelation 1? In Revelation 1, you remember that we have a picture of Christ standing in the midst of the candlesticks, which are the churches. And why is he there? What does that that imagery signify? In the first verse, well, sorry, the second and third verses, rather, of Revelation 2, we're told thus. It says, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience. Christ is present, standing, walking among the churches and observing. Just as he was on the banks of the Jordan, friend, no less, no less so. Christ stands, his presence is found in the church, scrutinizing her as her rightful judge and Lord. He is specially present among his people. And as Revelation bears out, he is there scrutinizing unbelief, dereliction, innovation, heresy, hypocrisy. And beloved, Christ's witnesses to this day still bear witness to that fact as well. Theirs is a present Christ who dwells among his people as her rightful king, as the one who sees sees all. Friends, as we close this morning, I want you to to see in this text how the witnesses of Christ are so clearly given an example of how lofty our thoughts must be of him. You see, when John thinks of the presence of Christ, he thinks of Christ, of course, as a judge, possessed of all of the rights that a judge would have. And he thinks beyond that, of course, of all of Christ's prerogatives related to his ordinances, related to his ministers and his members. He thinks, of course, of Christ's intrinsic worth, his preeminence, his excellency. All of these things, beloved, are lofty, lofty views of the Savior. And obviously the question we have to ask is, is that true of us? And the the infallible litmus test for you and for me with regard to that question is, do we possess the lowliness that John possesses? Oh, we will speak much of Christ. We'll speak much of our own high thoughts of him. But friend, make no mistake. If, If we are quick, if we're quick to tell the world all of the things that we do well, if we're quick to witness most of all to those things that would bring us honor, and we are so very reticent to make mention of our own unworthiness, 
Friend, those things very much stand against our witness to Christ's excellency. In fact, those things testify that we don't have lofty views of him. John had lowly views of himself because he had high views of Christ. Beloved, that will always be the pattern. That will always be what characterizes Christ's witnesses. But for the Christian, what what is it here that John says that is for our comfort and for our edification? I want you to notice that John gives us a short form of what he said to us several times before. In verse 26, he says, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you, etc., etc. And what is John saying? He hasn't really completed the thought, because the thought in its completer form is found in Matthew, in which John tells us that that he baptizes with water, but Christ baptizes with the Holy Ghost and with fire. So what is John telling us here? Well, friend, he's making an argument, and, and it's one that for the people of God is so sweet. Because Christ is preeminent, because he is so great, Well, friend, he can dispense greater gifts. John and any minister of the gospel can administer and even administer faithfully the ordinances established by Christ. But friend, at the end of the day, every minister of the gospel can only say they have only worked in external things. It is only Christ who can give the greater gifts, the substance of that covenant to his people. And so, friend, what does that teach us? That Christ can give greater gifts than the most illustrious minister of the gospel ever could. Christ, as the great shepherd of his sheep, can feed his flock better than any, any shepherd ever could. Even the greatest of the prophets, more than a prophet, says Christ. His gifts are greater and are sweeter. And so as we close, friend, this text is a clarion call to seek him. You see, John is rebuking these deputations for fixating upon the messenger. And that rebuke falls upon every one of us for doing so. Especially remembering that Christ stands in the midst of his people, offering them these greater things, offering to show them more and more of his loveliness and his excellency standing there to rule over them for their good and for his glory. Beloved John, in this text, reminds us that the call is always, always, to be fixed upon him. May we be found to be a people who comply. Amen.